0: Welcome to the Sports Loft podcast, where we talk about the intersection of sports technology and media. Today, we're going to be talking about selling internationally and the challenges that startups face, uh, especially in the world of sports and technology, in selling internationally and breaking out of their own borders. And very excited to have two Sports Loft members here, the two Nicks, to talk to us about it. But before we get to that, very quickly, we wanted to remind you to follow us on social at Sports HQ go to our website sportsloft.co and sign up to our newsletter where you can get a lot of information about the current goings-on in the sports tech field and uh, also please follow us and uh, subscribe and like this podcast if you want to hear more so without further ado we'll dive into the conversation what are the challenges of selling internationally how do you decide to break out of your borders how do you decide uh, which country to go to is it language based do you need boots on the ground all of this fun stuff to help dissect this and dive into it, uh, we've got Nick Goggins, the founder and CEO of Pumpjack DataWorks. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hello, good morning. And uh, joining us from the UK is Nick Pinks, who is the founder and CEO of Covatic. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me here today.
0: Uh, it's great, great to have you guys. Uh, for the for the just for the point of differentiation for the listeners, we will be referring to. Nick Goggins as Nick G uh, in PumpJack DataWorks, and Nick uh, Pink's as uh, Nick P, uh, which rhymes. So that that might not provide that much clarity, but hopefully everybody will be able to follow.
1: You could just go with G
2: Funk for me.
0: G <laughs> Funk, <laughs> ask and you shall receive. <laughs> so G Funk, please uh, give us give us a quick uh, a quick introduction to yourself and to what PumpJack DataWorks do.
2: Sure, thanks. You know, well we're, we're Pumpjack is effectively a data bank that's just converting data your data into an asset, uh, and we look at that from the the individual all the way into the companies, and we're focused for now in the sports entertainment space, uh, bringing us to Sports Loft, um, and so uh, we're happy to be here, and I, I think this is a topic that's near and dear to our heart as a uh, you know, where seventy percent of our business is outside the U.S.
0: Awesome, fantastic to have you here, uh, P Funk. Uh, please tell us a little bit. <laughs> please tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what Covatic do.
1: Love it. So yeah, well, thank thanks for having me here. Um, we we founded Covatic about uh, four and a half years ago, um, and our mission is to empower industry to deliver personalised digital services that respect and always protect personal privacy. So we really believe in creating those incredibly rich personal experiences, which includes advertising, but without ever exposing personal data. And so we're helping brands and sports companies engage and get in front of the right person at the right time without having to worry about things like GDPR, CCPA, or even Apple's ATT and every other acronym you can possibly think of. Yeah, people
0: have got to love acronyms when it comes to, uh, uh, when it comes to technology. It's always, it's always the best as I'm finding out. So listen, we're going to dive into talking about selling internationally. And you know, I think you are both uniquely positioned to do this because you're running uh, tech companies focused on the sports and, and, and media landscape. And you have services that are uh, incredibly valuable. But you need to promote those. And then you get a foothold in one country and then you need to figure out how do I go to another country and how do I promote those and what's the best way of going about it and do I use an agency and all of these questions that startups struggle with all the time, right? So we are a UK-based podcast, albeit Sports Loft members are based all over the world. Um, but I'll start with you, um, uh, Nick P. Uh, from a UK company perspective, and you come with experience from the BBC and you have like a network that you can go to as, when we started up CoVatic. When did the tipping point happen? So when did you suddenly wake up one morning or you know, having a beer in the afternoon or whenever it was, did you say, okay, now is the time to start looking outside? When do you know that point has arrived?
1: Uh, it's a good question. And um, we, we had a false start actually. Um, so that's something that startups will, will face a lot, I'm sure, and as companies, oh, we do it right now. And uh, I had this false start. We're six months, not even that, into the business. We hadn't even finished building the product. Um, and wow. we span out of the University of Oxford and they've got a fantastic international network no great surprises mm. there and anyway, unbeknown to us they they did a feature on us and they sent us out to their, their alumni and I got a, a WhatsApp message from a guy in um, Indonesia and said look, I run a media organisation I've got 100 million subscribers and we think what you're doing is, is great um, and we went Excellent. I'm glad you think that. I think it is too. How do you want to trial out? And it's like, let's, let's, and We had a number of phone calls and uh, negotiate quite a lot over WhatsApp and jumped on a plane, flew over to, to Indonesia and um, was in there going, right, my first proper big sale outside of my very close network happened to be halfway around the world. This is going to be amazing. Turned into a bit of a disaster, to be honest. Um, we were far too early. our product was not aligned to to their market at all. It wasn't a bad situation, but I learned very quickly that actually running before you can walk is actually quite a dangerous thing. Um, And while it's really exciting, and it was really, really exciting, actually got to be quite realistic and pragmatic with what you've got. Fast forward four years, um, we joined a big accelerator program out of Comcast in Philadelphia last year, and the world's Digital advertising ecosystem has changed so much over the last year. Um, the, the timing was right, and we had a real product. And I think if you're going to sell internationally, you need to be selling from a very firm base. You need to know what you got because you you are arms reach for a lot of things. And so we're able to go to the, go to the US and go go. We'll talk a lot about the US and Australia, the sort of two areas we're selling internationally at the moment, and go. Well, we're very comfortable that what we do really satisfies my domestic market so I know it's real and I can talk off the back of that and it will be different in international markets but you've got to come from your place so I think timing is important and it's that when you've got something that works and you can see a desire elsewhere, be it international or, or even arguably different market verticals, that's that's when I think you, you get that fuel to go yes I, I can see this.
0: and. What Nick Nick G, um, you you guys have um, been around for a while and had some very successful test cases uh, working with uh, NBA teams, teams in professional sports, but you've also now got a uh, pretty significant presence in Europe with uh, with some industry heavyweights having come on board to to, to represent you here. Uh, how? Did you make a similar, and I hesitate to call it a mistake, but because Nick P. sort of said it was a mistake, I'll I'll go ahead and use it. Did you did you did you make a similar mistake, or did you make sure that you knew it worked before you reached out? How did you structure that, um, and make that decision?
2: Well, I think uh, carefully. I think, um, and I think I agree with Nick that, um, especially being an American business going international because obviously the usa is a large market especially in sports right so if you're going to leave these shores you are going to increase your cost per sale certainly at the beginning you also i think too often i see and i've even advised some folks out of stadio or Mentor and things like this which is really do your home speaking to the americans out there uh don't as much as you can, I'm sure I'm still guilty of it because I'm also a Texan American. So, but um, what I would say there is, do the homework as best you can on the Europe elements of, and especially in the sports business. And I think the most common, I'll just go into this real quick. I think the most common misconceptions of the sports industry from either side, just in the Atlantic, we talk about Asia next, but Americans do not understand in general the whole pyramid. Federation governing body clubs and 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 the whole promotion uh, elements regulation uh, and and this, this we just don't get that uh, look at some of the private equity that's gone into, to doing some of that uh, they could have used that lesson you know the ones that are winning understood that before they got in now on the other side I think that Europeans come into the American market, really need to understand the college university sport landscape a much better and understanding the passion there. And, yeah. uh, uh, I think that that's probably the thing I see, uh, Europeans coming across this way, really missing the boat on just the cultural understanding of, you know, big college sport and, and how massive it really is and, uh, different nuances of it, uh, you know, so. Now, going back to business and the sales bit, you know, I think that we were led outside kind of by the market and what we wanted to do. And, you know, simply we're looking at asymmetry of of value from digital audiences, right? And so when I look at something and it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I sit here probably about 20 miles from AT&T Stadium of the Dallas Cowboys, okay? And then I look at something like Real Madrid, and from my perspective the problem to solve for Real Madrid is much more interesting uh, because you know, let's just take comps of Facebook fans, right? So Real Madrid has about 110 million fans on Facebook as a comp where the Cowboys have about 8 million. So if we're just looking at that as like a sense of a digital fan base and what what and obviously that's some level of tip of iceberg, right? How do we get revenue per user up? and how do we lift the values of those digital and to me obviously that's the future and then how does that impact mm-hmm. or improve values of not just linear and traditional rights but how that creates new values on streams et cetera. that's kind of how we're looking at things and so when i look at uh, then there's also when i look at the markets and also the opportunities in terms of how rights are already laid out there's more openness for change, arguably, in in some of the big international sport bases, whether it's in Europe, EMEA, uh, and also you know in the Asian markets. I mean, so yes, we're we, we've had some big success in in UK and EU, but we've also just you know we we have world table tennis in uh, Singapore. Obviously, a lot of that is in China, and then uh, uh, we've just signed up. Hong Kong Rugby Union. So those two are obviously very interesting in terms of data because of elements of dealing with Chinese firewall and things like this, and also you have whole different kinds of uh, cultural elements, obviously, uh, that need to be respected. And you know, and I'd say you know I'm learning every day on those elements. And uh, you know, this is where, you, you, let alone like all the other operational stuff you have to get into uh, from. You know, aside from just the selling, that's like the beginning. You know, a successful sale that opens up new problems around you know the operations of taxes and everything else.
0: So I, I have I have a a question on that because obviously it, things will depend very much also on what you're selling, um and and how you sell that and how the market responds to what you have to sell. Um and, and quite often what people will do is sell something different to the actual end product Um, so you know uh, you guys may be selling uh, licenses uh, to use software or you may be selling consultancy or you may be selling you know there's a whole host of different areas and ways that you can piece together your products did you um you know nick p it sounds like your first approach was an opportunistic one which was inbound and you kind of reacted did that help you shape the way that you think about not just okay I start to sell internationally, but also what you sell internationally as you as you approach those markets?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, I'm not sure necessarily that because of the inbound, because of what happened right at the beginning, but I think that we actually look at our proper international strategy. It, it does shift a little bit, and actually to, to Nick G's point, if, if I was selling a, when, when I sell um, into big organizations, you often start with a consultancy-like approach, try to build that relationship, try to see what value add you can bring, try to understand the major pain points and work out if your product's gonna suit suit that, you know, that particular person, that particular team. Obviously, if you're getting international, that's just a million times harder because I'm not coming from a place of knowledge in the sense that, you know, to, to, to Nick G's point that, you know, a, a lot of Americans might well struggle with the European approach to sport leagues and, and the management of that, that works exactly the same in inverse. Um, a lot of Europeans struggle with the concept and and. My background is very much in the tv space so syndication is a different concept to how it works in europe which again is different to how it works in other parts of the world so if you're going in saying look let me be your consultant and i'm going to give you lots of experience and knowledge on what's going on next nice question is so great so what do you know ah okay awkward um so you've got to be a little bit you've got to be very honest with yourself now in a digital space What's interesting, and, and i certainly found this over the last last few months in talking to lots of US sports teams, so I feel that I know quite a lot about digital engagement. I mean, talked about it for, for a very long time, built products on it in my background uh, in, in, in the BBC, was very much focused on this. But only a couple of months, well, weeks ago, I found out that obviously in the US, you can only sell advertising within 10 miles of your stadium. Geographic restriction, which has zero bearing on a digital product. So if I can target and personalize that perfect ad moment for the New York Giants fan who happens to live in LA, tough. Even even broader, if you live in London and you're you're, you're uh, an NFL fan, tough. And so understanding those cultural differences or, or the way the structure the teams have been built up and the way the uh, the whole whole league's been built is down to a cultural element and definitely affects the value of your product. Because the things that are most valuable here are not necessarily the things that are most valuable there. Um, And of course, personal data is a really good example of that. There is not one single common regard for personal data across the globe. Every country's got different interpretations of this, what you can and can't do, and the the value associated to it. So I think for us, selling internationally is is about, first of all, building a relationship and understanding where that that group, that team, that that client sits, and then understanding where they're trying to go and does that align to what the bulk of our core business is doing, or is it fringe? And I think that's you've got to be quite honest with yourself about that quite quickly.
0: And what have you found most successful so far, uh, Nick G, I'll start with you, in terms of driving success, or at least driving a pipeline internationally? Is it working with local consultants who have a pipeline on a commission basis is it building boots on the ground do you uh take a long tail approach and actually say we have a, a defined strategy as to how we're going to approach markets how, how are you looking at that
2: well you know i think covid changed it to be honest i mean it's safe the obvious but you know again where we started out pre was you know again. An accelerator. We, we, we looked at the market, kind of an accelerator. We did an accelerator with PwC in London. It kind of just got us across. And then we had some good conversations there, was able to kind of get a beachhead, if you will, uh, to find a in country kind of representative uh, to get going. That led to then another. So we kind of put those boots in. Physically, and then I was coming over on a, you know, kind of regular six weeks or so basis for a while. And that's the other thing. I think if you do it, uh, you got to commit to building those relationships. I think it is important when you can to uh, come over in person. I think that helps with the cultural elements and just, especially in the space that we're talking about around data, because it's so, uh, trust is so important there so i i do think that um and we will do this you know, as soon as um, as soon as i'm allowed back in the uk hopefully soon yeah i mean you know we are adding you know that that is our plan we're, we're building up our, at present we're going to be building up more of our uh uk office and more holistically as, as, as you know i think it is important to not just um my opinion again we're speaking as a tech company where you know 80 of our folks are engineers My goal is to build a node that's kind of a little bit of everybody. So there'll be customer service sales and engineering and product. There is the idea and putting nodes of that around the globe is kind of how we're thinking about it. It's a little more expensive, obviously. However, the other thing that C-19 has brought is, you know, we're uh, being an entirely distributed business that is Entirely global, pretty much every time zone is just leaning into that even more and setting up more of these kind of nodes or or, uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, the East India Company or something, you know, (laughs) know, French Legion, you know, you you come up with these kind of these, these concepts, right, where you have these outposts, if you will. Uh, is kind of how I've been thinking about it and that they can, that uh, they could operate almost independently with a handful, you know, less than 10 people, you know, um, and, uh, and, and kind of work it that way is it's kind of the present thinking. And again, look, I'm, I'm still figuring it out to be honest, because the, the, the COVID really changed the whole elements because if I, I would have answered this question totally differently, it would have been a lot of focus on the travel and how you manage how to manage the travel both ways you know bringing some of the UK team over to get indoctrinated in company culture since the headquarters is here you know that sort of thing right and now you know it's like being more strategic especially in sales now you're thinking about it totally changes how you're managing a sales team right because well maybe geographic which is the obvious you know distribution of leads let's say uh, maybe that's not the best. Maybe we can be more flexible about that or uh, around, you know, horses for courses on different things. Uh, you know, there's it just it creates a whole new rethink, you know, and I, I think that's a really interesting dynamic conversation. I don't have all the
0: answers for it. I have
2: a lot of the questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but so like that node here in London, is that focused on the UK market or are you looking at Europe, Middle East and Africa? Have you thought about is is that something you think about? How do I divide up the the world and how do I prioritize the market that I'm going to go after in order to uh, in order to try and and drive drive revenue?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think the way I've always looked at it is uh, looking at nodes of, of base and starting with London because it's kind of a, a central area. Well, it's obviously the UK market, but there are also so many global sports that are based there, federations are governing bodies, you know, something like ATP, for example. And then you start to think about, okay, from, from that perch. And then of course, another thing we had to deal with was Brexit. So we just think about last three years of trying to do this, and you've had the Brexit elements plus the, the pandemic. So I think that's the other thing too, is like the volatility of the, you know, the political economy is something that's very real when you're doing this and you need to kind of put in an element that this could crash. So you need to be able to have a retreat plan, I think, you know, so for example, with like Hong Kong, you know, it was shut down for political reasons, you know, uh, before COVID. It was like a double shutdown, right? You know, uh, so like, you you know, thinking it's just like all these things as as we're speaking about this have just been experienced. So. Also, with us with um, establishing the the beachhead in in UK, a lot of that too is about GDPR and elements that we wanted to set up as a data company. And the Brexit thing, cr- cr- is, you know, is, is another element because now we have to look at some of these outposts to be places where data can be. Right, those laws are extremely volatile. You know, um, and but I think we made a good thing. We decided to start. In Europe, because we knew that the laws were stronger there, so we wanted to build the platform at that basis. Then, whatever you know, a year into that process of already getting ahead in UK and Europe, then the CCPA came out in California, and you know, so that's going to be coming out here. And I think that that's been, you know, I think that was an element where that strategy put us ahead uh, from potentially other American companies. Uh, in in a space and how we're dealing with some of the uh, European laws that are stricter
0: that are then going to be enforced in the U.S. in a similar way.
2: Yeah, they will be. I think you know, I, I, I and I, and yeah, you know, it's a whole other conversation about whether the issue is really privacy or control. I think really it's about control of data under the guise of the uh, layman's term of privacy, but um, I think it's ultimately about improving control of data. So any rate the, the the concept of when to go into you know do, do do i have a london beachhead that can go to all down to you know middle east africa yeah i think so i think that what i am thinking because you know i mean again as an american you sometimes forget how geographically dense europe is you know i'll give an example i just drove my family in a, in a small SUV from Fort Worth, Texas to Camden, Maine, which is about 2,000 miles for your kids at home, that would be the equivalent of driving from London to Istanbul. So the my concept that one guy or one team could cover that from one area is like, yeah, sure. But obviously there's all kinds of different cultures, histories, languages within that. So you start to in the US, by the way, that's another thing. But yeah, I think, with the Brexit thing and just how that is, I, I do think, you know, it's one of, in our plans is, is an is a EU base. The question then is where, where is the best point after, you know, if you're going in order and you, you do, as an American, you London first makes a lot of sense, then wh- what's next? You kind of have this decision of like, Dublin, Amsterdam, do you go to Switzerland, especially because of all the federations, obviously, or, you know, do you do something like Spain uh or france
0: so but you raise you raise a very good you raise a very good point which is which is absolutely real which is how do you look at markets and how do you prioritize right so nick p like first of all have you hired somebody in indonesia now is that has that has that been done and secondly like what are the other considerations that you add in because one of the easy ones for us to talk about here is a uk and u.s company is you know language boom Similar, you know, similar cultural norms, albeit there are some refinements and things you need to to cover off, like you like you mentioned, how much thinking do you need to do about the capability or the uh, uh, the demand in the market for what you have to provide? You know, how do you look at whether the market is one that is uh, really sophisticated already? Like Japan, I would assume, is probably miles ahead of everybody else in terms of some of the stuff that that um, that you're looking at and you're doing. And is it more difficult to crack that market? Um, What are some of those considerations that you've been looking at as you start to to expand beyond the UK?
1: You're absolutely right. I think it's it's easy to to complicate the situation. I mean, there's there's a million reasons why it's difficult. Um, If you take a step back, let's go back to to sales 101. What is your go-to-market? What is your value proposition? And what are your um, what are you looking for in a potential client? So for us, um, yeah, we look at things like: Do you have a digital strategy? Do you have a large number of users or a small number of users that are not necessarily logged in? Do you rely on advertising? Do you rely on subscriptions? There's some of these questions that it doesn't matter where you're from in the world; they transcend borders. It's it's a, a fundamental question about how, what is your, as to our point of view, what are our clients' go-to-market strategy? How do they what how do they run their business? And, you know, if you are a government funded pseudo business that is not really reliant on revenue through digital, probably not going to see the best outcome from us or not necessarily be the things that are going to allow us to drive those levers to, to, to get the biggest bang for buck and the biggest impact. So I think when we look at clients and we start to, you know, beyond having that initial discussion and, and, and looking mm. at the market, you start say, well, where is it segment and where does it fit? So. Um, if you look at European countries, there's lots of you know, lots of interest in sports, but there are countries that stand out with a much stronger fan base and have got a much more digital first strategy. You, 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 pull, you find yourself being pulled towards those. I think also I mean, we're quite a young company and although four and a half years, we spent the first few years building a product, not trying to sell a product. So the selling stage is still quite young for us. So it's very founder led, that expression. There are a few people who really know what we do well and rely on the sales. Now, this is where COVID has actually really helped us out. You know, let's jump on a Zoom and chat about this. is a totally acceptable, good way of talking to somebody out anywhere in the world. Two years ago, uh, I'll have a call, sure, but ultimately the person who's in my office next week is the one I'm going to buy. And so there is then this uh, practical situation um, of, which again, actually to our Indonesian example, right at the beginning, I was like, you know, Nick. If we make this deal happen, then what? <laughs> you can—is your first thing you're going to do? You're going to build an office out in Indonesia? How's that going to work? Um, and suddenly it's like, well, actually, what's the practicality side of it? And and I do think that that uh, language comes into play now. Fortunately, digital language—it's all done in English. You write code in a, in a common language, so you know, maths is a really strong player in our space. Again, that's quite a common way of understanding. So that's not too hard. I think COVID has demonstrated that teams and, and companies can work really, really efficiently remotely. Um, and there's a lot of benefit of being in the office, but you can take that, that capability into an international scale. And there's no reason why you don't have 24 seven product development, because you've got you know, where people are and 24 seven customer support. and. It, you, you can actually really maximize effectively now with a quite a small amount of people uh, the, the benefit of follow the sun. So I'm really excited to get into that as, a, as part of our strategy. So I've worked in all sorts of different
0: sales organizations or, or, or sales structures, but bigger, smaller, more sophisticated, more global. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested in this, in this question for both of you, which is sort of a three-part question. The first is, how big is your sales organization? How many people do you actually have selling? Second is, do you have one person who's responsible for everything? Or have you split it out into different regions? Do you do like, are you looking at it by region sales that goes up to GM? And then the third is, are salespeople incentivized in different ways in different regions because of the products and the market and the, and the sort of stage of the company, or is it all aligned? Uh, uh, and and there is no right or wrong answer to all of this. It's kind of like, how's it all grown up, right? But um, I'm fascinated to hear how you guys have have built that and how it's going. Nick G, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I I love that question. It's very much what I've been uh, thinking about the last 40 hours, actually. I think I'm going to start with a little bit answering some of the previous question or just around the theme again, around for those other peer entrepreneurs out there, congratulations, you've decided to, to sell in the sports industry. Get ready, the sales cycles are extremely long. And this is why venture capital, is, this is one of the reasons why they, don't, they do not like the TAM of sports. And this is another thing that you have to understand if you are raising capital and you're gonna come up with this, so just know it now. And I think one of the things that is also at play here when you are selling new things into a market the thing that's difficult about sport is inherently they have a few things that make it very difficult to sell into and this is I'm this is these reasons I'm going to lay out have to do with how we're thinking about sales structure but at first level the organizations are extremely conservative and they should be they they, they are the storied brands and local communities, sometimes they're even a symbol of the nation, right? So as such, people that work there are, have also sometimes worked up tens of years to get to the positions that they're in that maybe you're selling to. And you need to respect that. And so that means that their risk threshold for new things is going to be lower. And on top of that, to make it even more difficult, everyone is in a seasonal mindset, whether they, and I think that sometimes they're unaware of the flow of the the actual season and the pitch and how, when they have a match day, how that affects the week, or you know if they have two big matches in the week or something, how that can disrupt things. So it's very, very, you have to be very cognizant when you're speaking in season and off season uh, and attention spans change dramatically between those two things. So ultimately what I'm saying is, trying to find places that are open to new technologies truly, can bring them in, can adopt them, is is very uh, a unique situation that you really have to be, I think, just totally a hustler about finding those right points and being comfortable with like, I'm gonna try and get to know faster, that's gonna be too hard to get to a certain point before I can build a, a whole pit. So. When you're trying to understand, that's one of the reasons why, by expanding internationally and kind of thinking through these things, you are trying to go really quickly on a psychological place as far as thinking through where can I find transformation agents, you know, new owners, new ownership, uh, new contractual deals, these sorts, new new hirings, these sorts of things, and in, in, in taking advantage of where there is volatility. If you're an early stage business, this, this is really the only places you. you're you're honestly able to play. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to be stuck doing free work and you're going to be effectively financing some of these companies who are going to hold you over the coals on cash. That's just the reality. So knowing what I just laid out and and to what Nick just said, right? Like you are, of course, and and we have been, you know, mostly the co-founders, founders are going to be and have to be a key part of the sales organization. You know, definitely through your seed probably still involved in series A, especially if you get to the larger enterprise style things, if you're doing a a league or a federation. But you also need to get out of that as a CEO as fast as possible. I think we started again very early with kind of getting some, uh, sales agents and nodes and what we've now doing is are thinking through, okay. As we're scaling up the sales team, we're also finding, well, we have certain talent and you might have someone who, um, is British had their 10 year career in London and now lives in, you know, Mexico city. So they're going to have a huge network of people in the UK. Should they be selling to the UK or, uh, are you going to say, no, you've got to just give leads to the local guy who's there. Like, you know, so I, 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 don't think that's why I've been thinking a lot about how geography fits that and how do we encourage the sales organization as we're building up more people to pass stuff around faster. And that gets into how you're thinking through different um, team goals, different potential bonus things, uh, how, how you're dealing with commissions and all these kind of structural elements that, that, that stick up. But I think the uh, agility is maybe I would, I might be the thing that I'm trying to think through the, the, the highest. And that is about everything. It is about, the zones. It's about the thinking. It's about getting to yeses and noes fast. It's about languages. So we're definitely thinking through this. the sales team and trying to have more languages on board and uh, other diversity elements, right? In sales organizations, in sport tends to be heavily male. I think uh, thinking through uh, those elements to, to, to level that out is, is definitely a key piece of how, how we're thinking about a few things.
0: And and so do you have a single a single person leading the whole sales organization, or is that sort of still all up to you at this stage and you're you're about to pass it down?
2: Yeah, we've we've established early. So I've gone and said we're gonna have a sales manager first before I start scaling up the next you know, we have like basically, you know, one salesperson plus two founders, you know, and some other people playing multiple hats. All right. So as we start to scale okay, I wanted to get the sales manager in first and establish the real kind of scalable system, if you will, right? Where, okay, it's time now to move, be a little more disciplined about how the CRM is used, how we're doing metrics and KPIs around a sales funnel. Just the kind of sales 100, not just putting it in, but getting the discipline into it. Because if we don't have, and, and building the system, it's like, okay, this is for the next, you know, 20 people, right? And so, you know, it's kind of just to clean up our act, so we're more effective and, and um, disciplined is obviously the, the tendency is to just be wheeling and dealing, right? And so I think that's always a key stage of a startup is moving from the wheeling and dealing into a methodical, more organiz- organizational basis. You know, I'd say you go from like, go you know, from street fighting to like special forces and then you have an army, right? And, you know, I think we're in the special forces
0: so nick b how have you built your army how are you, you guys are four years four and a half years into the company Two half of that time was spent building the product so you've kind of had half a half of the lifetime starting to scale how have you gone about building it what what, what are you how are you guys looking at it
1: we're still hustling the street fighters i think you know how, how big's my sales team everyone in the company they've got a responsibility to try to, to sell, sell, sell the products in the business um and that, that's the that's the textbook answer. I think the real the truth is it's it's myself leading the sale. Um, I've got three people who are uh, uh, consultants, I suppose, who who help our time with that, which works really well. Um, bring leads in, help keep me close to the market. What's going on? I've got one is particularly close in Australia, one in the Middle East, and one in the US. Um, Connected into those markets are not zero in their base, but it, it, it certainly helps. And we've got a few channels are working down as well at the moment, which is good. Um, and we're sort kind of growing those. But so the sales team is not particularly large by any stretch. It's my primary area of focus right now. Um, we, we recently brought on a, a chief product officer who's, who's absolutely incredible. He's really taking a lot of that off my, my plate right now, so I can focus very heavily on sales. Because I think as a founder, you, you, I Nick mean, was saying, you know you got to get to a place where a CEO, you're not having to worry about all the sales. And, and, and prior to that, you've got to make sure you're not worried about all the product. Um, and so you kind of build a bit to a place which is good enough and then get somebody who's able to really make it fantastic. Um, Mm. and I'm now looking at my sales route very heavily and and actually debating and really interesting is what Nick Nick was saying there do I want to bring in a couple of junior people to say do what I've done now do it 10 times each or do I bring in a senior person and say right do what I've done make it better and then we'll bring in 10 people beneath you um, and and have the whole international play as as it goes and honestly it's Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, the the way we want to go this right now.
2: It's it's funny you mentioning that because that's precisely my next hire. I'm looking at as as head of product because I'm you know I, I think any any of the founding early stage folks will find that as you start scaling up, it's how can I get product off my plate? How can I get the sales off my plate? And one of the things it's I think you know generally obviously a founder will be you know some percentage of a little bit, you know, 80-20 sales guy to product guy or, you know, opposite, right? Or 60-40 or something. But um, I think, and I've seen this in a lot of companies, sometimes when you you have the case where the um, founding team, this could be one person or, or two or three, let's say it's three and two of them are kind of sales and marketers and one's an engineering guy, that kind of case. It can be very... As far as a tip, I think it's important to really kind of think through no one is going to sell the product in the same way that the founder does. And I think when you start thinking through how are we going to scale the pitch and the system, it almost needs to not include how the founder is selling. Right. Uh, Because there will be elements of it, but I feel like that should be brought into the at the end but the, the, you, know, you you really should be thinking it through. And I almost think like some of it should come through client services and, and the use cases so that it becomes, you, know, you get to really get to that, like objectively and the stuff that Nick was talking about earlier. It's like, what are we doing that benefits the end user? And, and how are we articulating that value and really trying to take any kind of the emotional bits out of it and thinking that through, and then you can add that stuff back in which also, by the way, allows a lot of different kinds of flavors to, to different types of salespeople. So it's another thing we've just been doing is is um, kind of disc and psychological profile type stuff on our, on our internal sales team. So I'm thinking through a lot of there are different, just naturally different types of salespeople. None are any better than any other. And so what we want to be able to do is be like, here's our core story. You can take this you're going to be more of the relationship let's get a guess person that's good this is more of the analytical more aggressive you know, all the different bits in between but i think thinking through that kind of psychological match is extra important when you're doing an international thing and if you if you just think of the geographic map or or the world different psychologies might work better in different markets whether you know somebody's more of a straight to the point wheeler dealer type. You can probably think of three countries where that might work better than others where it's really about building a longer relationship and building the trust. And then, you know, again, those things matter more if you don't speak the language. So these elements in the space of sports where it's already conservative and and these sorts of things, I think really have to be thought through very carefully to be really successful.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think the other thing I find interesting about selling to sports is even if you've got somebody who wants to go right now, that's still in the confines of the season that you're operating within because a lot of stuff can't be touched during the season. And actually, if you then put that together and you look at a map, uh, or sorry, calendar, align a calendar with a map, and you can see hot spots throughout the year where you want to focus in different areas, I've been looking at this over the last week and saying, well, well for example, off-season, uh, when does the, uh, the NFL start again? You know, September time. And So, you know, you, you've got, okay, so I've got a window before then, but come, come October, if I've not done my sale by then, in fact, realistically, if I've not done my sale by June, it's not happening this year, right? You know, it's, it's my sales could start because it starts again in January and stuff. And if you, if you look at that, and you're absolutely right, and then you overlay the different temperaments and type of people that, that respond well. In the different 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 countries and you know we're talking a lot about uk and the us but obviously asia is an entirely different kind of fish altogether but again same you know it's, it's around the cultural elements that sit there right, it creates a really interesting dynamic which then goes back to my challenge at the moment should i be looking for people that are going to satisfy that or do i want somebody to help build that map really effectively to find the people that can sit in there and i do actually I really take on point i think i like what you're saying there about the whole You've got to extract the uh, founder's emotion out of everybody else's sales. I mean, that's that's the secret sauce that you've got, and nobody can copy that. It's not not sincerely, not in a way that people are going to believe that you've sweated and, and cried over every nuanced decision you've made as a founder to get to this place. You know, I've come in as a highly performance salesperson, so I'm here to close this deal. Great, be genuine. That's who you are, and that's what you're doing. And then. I think if you try to get a founder to, to make you like them, that doesn't go well. And I've certainly seen that as well, actually, where have got to try to work out how to uh, extract the key value points to sell it. Well,
0: this has been a great conversation, gents. Uh, we're closing in on an hour here. I just wanted to give you a chance to recount an anecdote, a story, your best or worst international sales experience like when you were going into a new market and either nailed it or, or messed it up. I I think it wasn't like one event, but I,
2: when I first came over to the UK, I, I I, I was not a follower of football kind of knew it indirectly. It studied on the clubs and the history of the clubs, Uh, but I had a, a hard time. And I had, you know, understanding the Premier League versus the FA. I got a, a lesson quick, but it's funny how you, you think you've done the research and then there there you are and you're like, wait, what? What's the FA Cup again? <laughs> you know, it's now like my favorite thing. <laughs>
0: And it's not helped by the fact that even within the same country system, you've got the Premier League. At the time, it was probably like the next division was probably called the Championship, which is like, well, hang on a second. How's the Championship not the top one? And then the one underneath that is called League One. You're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the third division competition is called League One? That makes no sense. Yeah, see, so you like, well, I thought League One was something else in another country. And, you know,
2: our are, are ones ahead of A's. And, you know, it, it's, it, you know it, it's like um, – because yeah, because I mean, just that that concept for you know, because again, the Americans is, is all about the league, right? So the, you know, the idea, <laughs> the idea that the, the Dallas Cowboys could be playing in five different competitions uh, is just completely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Nick P, what was what was what was your most interesting, best or worst international sales experience?
1: I'll I'll give you. I uh, mean, so pre-pandemic, all all international sales experiences generally relied on or involved horrible, horrible transfers, horrible flights, things going horribly wrong. You know, the the, the joys of being on the road, right? And you know, I was just thinking back as, as you're saying. I mean, the horror stories. I mean, I famously I, so, I went, went over to the Middle East um, for a for a, for a meeting, really, crucially important one. You Know you fly over there, really big opportunity. Sales guy put loads of effort in to make the whole thing happen. 10 minutes before the meeting, the client locks up and goes, ah, Do you mind if you do it tomorrow? I'm busy now. It's like, Um, yes, I mind. No, we can't because I've got a flight, I'm going wrong, you know, and that, that sort of stuff happens so much. So. You know, beyond the, uh, the, the COVID, I'll catch you in Zoom in 10 minutes' time and you can get them instantly. And if somebody's two minutes late for a meeting, you start emailing, going, where are you? We've got the wrong time sort of thing. Just think back to the horror stories, what it's like when you're always in person and, you know, traffic drops you can't make the meeting. What can I do? It's like, you're stuck there. Um, and actually, we'll go back to my Indonesian uh, experience. We ended up, um, we went there, we met, we met the guys, and it's like, do you want to let's, let's meet the development teams? Like, yeah, cool, whatever, definitely let's do that. Great. Go to the airport. What? Yeah, so they're in the other part, another island. So he's going to jump on a, a flight, and the last flight didn't quite get there, and they got like halfway and got stuck. But we'll get this one, we'll be fine, don't worry. And we we'll get to the airport, and the military come in and shut the airport because they want to use it for a bit. And we're stuck in this tiny little room where there's like hundreds of people piled in. We're in our suits, dying, and there's you know, the clients there going, ah, oh, it's fine, don't worry. It's okay, we'll promise you the next flight will be all right. You know, it's, it's a nightmare. You kind of go, the, the joy of international sales is the fact that, you know, you've got to get yourself completely engrossed in the culture. Um, but, but it's worth it. There's nowhere worth it. And, and the, the, the satisfaction, I tell you, for a, a founder to see your product the first time it's being used in a different culture internationally, you see that data coming through. It's incredible um, and I do, never mind the financial rules and all, and all the business, but the actual why we started this and what drives us late at night to get it over, it's amplified when it's abroad. It really is um, and it's in a you know, different different, different territories. So I, to all, all the founders are listening, good luck because it's worth it, but uh, it's going to be a lot of sweat and effort and it, it, it's fun. It's got to be fun.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, the solution is never just coming up with the perfect product. You got to get out there and market and sell it as well. So... Thank you to both of you for, for sharing uh, insights and war stories uh, from the international startup sales front. Uh, I'm looking forward to going into that back into that world very soon. So all, all that remains is for me to say, if you uh, enjoyed today, please subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast to get more uh, info. Uh, don't forget to follow us on social at Sportsoft HQ and head to the website sportloft.co to sign up for our newsletter. Um, Thanks also to our partners, uh, SRI and Northridge LLP. And a big, big thank you to uh, Nick Gorgons from Pumpjack Dataworks. Thank you so much for jumping on board with us today. Thank you. you. It was a pleasure. And Nick Pinks from Kovatic. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your time and insights. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And to all the listeners, thank you very much. And join us for the next Sports Love podcast. Bye-bye.